I do remember it like it was yesterday. We began fundraising for that building across the street, Columbia 145. It's a great building. And I remember going in there and seeing the place when it was gutted. It was empty. It was dusty. People wrote on the walls. It was encouraged, actually. It wasn't graffiti at that point. Um, but when you went inside, you could see the dust, the disorder, the chaos. I mean, you could see a couple hints of goodness, I guess. But for the most part, it was just something that just looked like, ah, oh, this place is kind of a dump right now. Not the kind of place that you'd want to spend time in. Me and the guys, lots of the staff, actually, we'd go across the street every now and then and kind of scope the place out and see how the progress was coming along. Upstairs, we would go into the offices as, you know, they were yet unformed. But this is Pastor PJ's office. We went in there and I spat on the floor a little bit, set it up for him. Uh, I sprayed my cologne in there just so it smelled like me when he walked in there. I don't know if it worked or not, but anyhow, uh, it was not something too pretty to look at. But now if you go there today, if you go to 145, you'll see that that same office is now beautified. That's Pastor PJ's office. Why am I in there? Because I can't. I went in there. I took a picture. Now, actually, it was kind of a joke because I'm wearing all of the Master's University gear. Got my Master's hat, Master's shirt with the Master's mug. Uh, I never went to Master's, but he did. And it, and it drives me crazy that I'm wearing this wagon and he doesn't get any. One of the... Uh, one of the cool things is we have this new lounge, which I think we named today. Um, we have ping pong in there and uh, that thing where you throw the, the bags at people. What's that game called? Where you throw the cornhole, yes. Oh, not, you don't throw them at people. You throw it in the hole. <laughs> but it's more fun if you throw it at people and maybe make it in the hole at the same time. Anyway, everybody wants the results of a restoration process, right? You, we want to have the ping pong tables and Pastor Mike's cool and everybody on that. And everybody wants the, the coffee maker, but nobody wants to go through the process to get there. In fact, the process to get there was long and laborious. In fact, I would look out the window on occasion as I walked out the front door of the 140 building, looking at that 145 and saying, man, someday we're going to be in there. But right now, like, it's kind of a bummer because I, I see it, I want it, and I know it's in the future, but I'm not going to have it. Process stinks. Uh, we're somewhere between the now and the not yet. That's always the weird part of that. In a very similar sense, the world that we currently live in is the now that points forward to the not yet. We're in the middle of a building project where our master builder, being Jesus, is taking us from where we are to where we're eventually going to go. But like all building projects and all renovation projects, the process between now and then is messy. It's dusty. In fact, it might even look a little chaotic. It might look like there's things that are not quite working right. You know, you flip a switch and nothing turns on because it's still a work in progress. You go in and you find dust on the floor and there's stuff on the walls. There's a lot of things that are still in process. In fact, in the world today, it might look like dust, disorder, and chaos. All the while, all the while, while you're in the building and everything looks like it's still in disarray, there are blueprints and there is a master builder behind all of the disorder and the chaos saying, no, this is on purpose. 
this is necessary. Those hanging wires, those are necessary because that's the internal electrical system. We need to make sure that we get that sorted out right. Uh, this, these pipes over here that are leaning against the wall, well, that's going to be the, 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 the plumbing or whatever else it might be. All the disorder and chaos actually points to something grander that is down the road. It's the now and the not yet, and that's what's happening in the world today. We have a very similar system of now and not yet. We're in the world that God has given to us, but the not yet is the fact that Jesus is coming back. He's going to make things right. But in the meantime, we're undergoing a construction project that isn't all too fun. Enter evil. Enter suffering. Well, as I made the analogy already, the world today is not as it's going to be. We're in the now, and the not yet is in the distant future. We need to figure out how to navigate through the, the dust and the construction project that we're all currently in. And quite honestly, uh, there's going to be injuries, there's going to be deaths, there's going to be uh, setbacks in the building process, or at least what looks like setbacks. And God doesn't promise to exempt us from that. In fact, God promises that we're going to be put into those things because we're Christians. Christians are not immune. We need to figure out how to deal with this. Because how and when God deals with evil, how and when God deals with the construction project called our planets and our souls, uh, really has massive implications for us. Last week we started with chapter 1 of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, if some of you did the song, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, it's all the same. Um, the idea here is that Habakkuk is complaining because God seems to be not doing what he should do. If he's a good God and he's a just God, God, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? And then God responds, well, hold on a second. I am going to do something and you're not going to like it. In fact, I'm going to use the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and I'm going to bring so much pain and destruction, you won't know what to do about it. And then Habakkuk says, well, hold on. That's not what I meant. That's not what I wanted. Uh, God, how could you use an evil people to accomplish your good purposes? I don't get it. And then we talked about concurrence and how God can use good in the same time that someone's intending it to be evil. How can God uh, put those things together? Well, he does. And now in chapter two, remember we left off where Habakkuk says, well, I'm just going to wait to see what God says. Because God, I know you're good. And yet you're using these bad people to inflict a, a righteous people, a people better than them. How could you do that? How does that make sense? And then he says, and I'm going to wait. I'm just going to see what God says. Chapter two is how God responds to Habakkuk. And what we're going to see is that God when he seems slow to respond, in fact, when God seems unfair, which is the title of our series, when God seems unfair, there are some things that we have to remember. First of all, that God is perfectly just, okay? Not immediately just, but perfectly just. That's a big distinction. We're going to see that God is perfectly just, and what he's going to do is exact justice at the right time, in the right way, and for the right purpose. He's perfectly just, although not immediately just, and he will exact justice at the right time, in the right way, and for the right purpose. See, those are three qualifiers that you and I sometimes struggle with. But he's going to lay it out to Habakkuk. And I'm so excited because chapter two is where things take a turn. And then chapter three next week, I'll, I'll let you know what we're going to cover next week when we get to the end of the sermon. But this chapter is chock full. There's a lot here. Put on your seatbelts. We have a lot to cover in a short period of time. Start with me. We're going to look at just a few verses. In fact, I'm going to have to apologize up front because I had to chop this thing up in a little, a bit of a weird way. So we're going to look at the first five verses, but skip verse four. And then we're going to look at a large section of verses and then skip two verses. And then we're going to look at the last. You'll see what I'm doing. Hang with me. Verses two, uh, chapter two, verses two and three. We're going to see how God answers Habakkuk. Remember, Habakkuk says, God, how could you do this? You're too good. You're too good. You're too pure. How could it be that you use these evil people? God never really answers him fully, but here's what he says. 
Habakkuk 2, 2 and 3, and verse 5. And the Lord answered me, Habakkuk says, and this is what the Lord says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. In other words, I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell you what's going to come, Habakkuk, write it down, because you're going to spread this message far and wide. I'm going to make sure that lots of people hear this. Verse 3, for still uh, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Skip verse 4, verse 5. He says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. All right, so what you see, first of all, is God detailing in verse 2 and 3 and 5. God is saying, hey, justice isn't here yet, but trust me, I see what the Babylonians are doing. I'm not ignorant to that, Habakkuk. I, I see everything that's happening here. And then he goes on in verse 5 to say, I see exactly what they're doing. Wine is a traitor. You know, they're, they're, they're never satisfied. They're always conquering more people. They're greedy. Uh, death, uh, he never has enough. And he's gathering a lot of people. I get that, Habakkuk. I get that. In fact, I get that more than you realize. Justice is coming. But as I made the distinction already, notice here he says, uh, it's in the future. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. In other words, justice is coming, but not yet. Point number one, I think we ought to rejoice in that. Thank God that justice isn't immediate. As God is telling Habakkuk what is about to come, what's about to transpire, he says, justice is coming, but not, not exactly at this point in time. I have one, two, three, I have four kids. Four kids. Every now and then, got to count, make sure I got it right. Uh, we have a new one, so that makes things hard. Scripture tells me, and this is the worst part about being a parent, I struggle with this, that if I love my kids, I'm going to spank them. Um, I use a shabet. The shabet is what we, we refer to it now. Uh, but we don't spank them for everything. You know, sometimes we'll throw a warning shot. Like we'll say, hey, forgot to pick up your socks, Jacob. Pick up your socks. See your socks right here. They shouldn't be here. Actually, the greater offender is Adam. Adam leaves stuff around. And we'll tell Carissa, like, hey, Carissa, you're supposed to, whatever she's supposed to do. You know, you're supposed to, why, why is your doll on the floor? Uh, why, why is your dress in the middle of the living room? You know, those, those kind of things, right? We don't spank them for everything. We'll just say, hey, you know, yeah. one of the things we'll say is you're cruising for, I say that, you're cruising for a bruising. Your parents ever say that to you? Cruising for a bruising. And we all know what that means. That's code language. I'm going to beat your butt. But, but again, we don't always do this. Sometimes we'll fire warning shots. Say, hey, I see this. There's an infraction here. But you can only fire so many warning shots before you have to act, right? But because I love them, I'll fire several warning shots. We'll be gracious and patient and say, hey, pick up your stuff. Hey, you left your food on the floor. Whatever it is, whatever it is. In a very similar sense, God looks at us and maybe he fires warning shots at us. Here's the law. Pay attention to the law. That's where conviction comes in, right? That's where you go to a sermon, you hear something convicting, you're like, oh, God's firing warning shots at me because God's not doing anything with your sin at that point in time. He's just revealing it to you. He's saying, hey, you left your socks on the floor. Hey, you're being gossipy, and I hate gossip. Hey, you're doing things that offend my perfect holy character. 
God's very good about that. He's a good dad in that sense, where he calls it to our attention things that don't align with his character. But notice, now for every one of us in this room, God's justice to meet our sin is never, rarely ever, actually, I should say, rarely ever immediate. It's not like you forgot to pick up your socks and God suddenly strikes you dead. Boom, you're done, right? God doesn't do that. And man, I got to tell you, that's, that's a good thing that God's justice is not an immediate thing. Because what ends up happening is for many of us, what we go through in life is the, the recurring pain of life's, uh, life's difficulties. Sometimes I do spank my kids. I hate that part. I hate that part. But one of the things I'll, t- I'll tell them is, look, when you're spanked, the spanking is meant to inflict a small pain so that you remember that sin is painful and destructive. Sin is painful and destructive. Uh, And in fact, uh, this little sin that you're dealing with here that caused you to get a swatting on your behind is meant to help you see that the bigger picture is that when we sin against the holy God, it ends up in more than just a swatting on our behind. It ends in eternal conscious torment because we're sinners and we're rebellious and therefore God will have to deal with that. Pain as a rule, as C.S. Lewis said, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is God's way of getting your attention. Pain is God's way of drawing you back to himself. Pain is God's way of instructing and teaching you. But again, uh, that's not God's full justice. What you're seeing here is a taste of God's justice saying, listen to what what I'm saying to you. Pay attention to why this hurts. Using the term justice, I need to stop and ask, uh, ask a question to you as you think about this. What is justice? Today, the term social justice has made its rounds, and because of that, I felt it necessary to, at least for a moment, quickly define what we're, what we're saying here. We talk about justice. We're talking about justice in really two ways. Um, we're talking about the process by which, and I stole this from some dictionary, I forget which one, but we're talking about the process by which the righteous are protected, the wicked are punished, and the result of that is justice. So the righteous being protected, the wicked being punished, that's the process of justice, which results in the state of justice, right? Bad guys get what they deserve, the good guys get what they deserve, and the result is justice. That's what we're talking about when we talk about God's justice. We're saying God deals with people in such a way where uh, the bad guys get what they deserve, the good guys get what they deserve, and the result, the state after that is just just society. And, and you'll see at the end of this definition here that it is an emulation of the kingdom of God. In other words, God's justice is practiced in this world, but it points to the next world. God's perfect, everlasting, just reign, where he gives the bad guys what they deserve, the good guys what they deserve, and the result is an emulation of God's kingdom, his just and perfect kingdom, not social justice. Social justice, you have to ask yourself, I don't have time to talk about this, but you have to ask yourself, what is social justice? Does the uh, name actually have a, a right view of what justice is, or is there an alternative meaning being imported into the term? Social justice. Maybe we could talk about that someday. Yes. Again, talk about that soon, but that's not what I'm talking about, okay? So whatever you have in your mind for social justice, I'm saying I'm pretty confident for the most part, the term, the, the term justice is being misappropriated, misused, and the right term is bad guys get what they deserve, good guys get what they deserve, and the result is God's justice. What do we need to know about God's justice? Well, first and foremost, as you see Habakkuk 2 here, it says, uh, the Lord answers Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. Uh, God's justice isn't immediate, but it is clear. 
It is a clear thing. It is something that is spelled out. There's no ambiguity here. God's justice is something that is coming. It will be enacted. It will be perfected. God's just judgment is clear. There is no legal loophole for this. It is a clear reality. In fact, I, I like the way that Romans 2.8 puts it. Not, not, the, not because I like the content, but I like how clear it is. In Romans 2.8, he says, Paul says, about, says this about the wicked. He says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be, and you see those words there? Those words are terrifying, right? Wrath and fury. Oh, almost got it. Close enough. You get it. Wrath and fury. <laughs> or truth. <laughs> Wrath and fury. God's justice is coming. It will be clear because his law is clear. Now, for some of you guys, I know that the Bible is, I mean, for most of us, actually, the Bible can be challenging to understand, challenging to apply because it's got different language, it has a different people, a different culture, a different context. But for the most part, the Bible is pretty clear about what it says is right and wrong. Um, you shall not bear false witness. You shall honor your mother and father. You shall not commit adultery. It's the kind of stuff here. Like if you just think about the Ten Commandments all by themselves, it's the kind of stuff that's super clear to understand. And that's the stuff that God holds as his standard for every single one of us. It is his standard that he says, this is the law. Any falling short of the law or the glory of God will result in my just judgment. Mark Twain was quoted as saying, it's not the stuff in the Bible that I don't understand that concerns me. It's the stuff in the Bible that I do understand that really concerns me. I think that he's right about that. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible you may not get, but the stuff that you do get, that's the stuff where it's like, okay, it's abundantly clear. God prefers, not prefers, God commands us to do good and not evil. And yet, all of us know what it's like to not follow through on that. Habakkuk verse 3, 2, two, two verse 3, it says here that... Uh, Hastens to the end, it will not. Okay, the vision awaits its appointed time. Remember, this is something in the future. I'm showing you the vision, Habakkuk, but it's coming, it's not yet. So not only is justice clear, but it is certain. It is something that has a scheduled date on the calendar. Now remember the context here. It's Habakkuk learning about the Babylonian invasion, the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, same people. He's hearing from God, hey, the Babylonians are going to come. It's going to be terrible. In fact, if you're reading Jeremiah, you're reading the fulfillment of this passage here. If you're reading Jeremiah with us in the DBR, it's getting exciting, and exciting in a terrible way, I guess, because Jeremiah was just thrown into a muddy pit because the Babylonians, or not, not the, the, the Israelites, Judah specifically, were saying, we don't want to hear what you're preaching. We'd prefer just to get rid of you. Well, uh, God is saying, hey, the Babylonians are coming. There's a fixed date. There's a fixed time. Even though it's not yet, it is still certain. It is a future reality that you can count on. There are many judgments that all of us go through, at least most of us will anyway. The first one that you should be aware of is the fact that there is a judgment right after you die. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In other words, you will die, and then you will face God, and you will be judged. Scary place to be. But even more than that, Acts chapter 17 talks about a day that is in the future that everyone will stand before and be judged. It says here, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who do you think that man is? It's of course Jesus, right? And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So there is a future day of God's justice to be enacted on all humankind. Death and then judgment, we face Christ. 
God's justice is clear. It is certain. I had to think of another C, so let me just give this one to you here. In verse 5, wine is a traitor. Arrogant man is never at rest. He's talking about the Babylonians now. He's describing their character. His greed is as wide as Sheol, uh, like death. He never has enough. He gathers him for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. So this greedy people, these conquering people who are also very brutal, he says, I see them. I recognize what they're doing. I am alert to these people. Another word you might use is cognizant. It's a special word, right? It's a, it's a, big, it's a big word. So we're going to use that one. God's justice is cognizant. It is alert. It is aware of exactly, precisely what is happening. When Habakkuk says, God, how could you use this wicked people to judge your people? He says, no, no, hold on a second here, Habakkuk. I know what I'm doing. I know full well who these people are. In fact, I know them better than you know them. Let me tell you all about these people, which is exactly what he's going to do. But before he does that, he says, Habakkuk, I want you to know, I know who these people are. I'm aware. He says in Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. It's impossible for God to be unaware of every single detail of your life. And this is kind of a scary thought. In your moments of sinfulness, when you think you're alone, God is watching. God is watching those things. And it's not just you, it's all of us. Because God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and he's uh, omniscient, all-knowing, it's impossible for God not to be aware of every single detail of your life, good and evil. And that's what he's trying to convey to Habakkuk here. That's not just true in a passive, like, ethereal sense. That's true in the most practical sense. Namely, God is keeping track of the evil deeds done by mankind. In this case, the Babylonians. Justice isn't immediate, but it's clear, certain, it's cognizant, it's aware, it's alert. Why then? Why does God delay? Well, we've all had the experience, haven't we? Where we just wish, man, God, just do something. I hate what's happening. Maybe you saw a video of an oppressed people group. Maybe you saw some violent behavior, or you saw some guy abusing a child or kicking a kid or... I mean, it doesn't take a lot of news to see the evil that man perpetuates upon humanity. And, and in your heart, maybe you say, Lord, please judge those people. Please, God, stop the evil in the world. It's kind of like seeing the swell of a wave, I guess. God is showing us like there is a coming judgment, a big wave that is swelling so large that it seeks to consume the very thing that it lands on. In fact, sometimes we call those tsunamis, right? Tsunamis like that. It's a massive wave that encompasses the entire village, or the, the, that's not a real picture, by the way. Because that person who took the picture probably would have died. Uh, the swell of God's judgment is coming. Why does God delay? Why does God wait? A word that you might use is, why is God's justice restrained? This isn't part of my text, but it'd be, it'd be unhelpful if I didn't tell you this. And this is going to resonate through the, the entirety of this sermon, young person. God's justice is restrained so that you might, take a guess, repent. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Which, by the way, the context of 2 Peter 3 is the same as that we're having here with Habakkuk. 
God's justice. Where is he? He talks about a coming future. He hasn't come yet. Therefore, God's never coming. But Peter says, well, hold on a second. God is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. In fact, uh, it's not that it's slow. It's appointed. It's a coming date in time. The whole point, though, is that he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. One of the best and biggest reasons God does not enact immediate justice and judgment on all of us is because he wants to see people saved. There are people in this room whom God is waiting on to save. And that's why he's not judging you. That's why he hasn't given you what you deserve because he's waiting for you to repent and trust so that your just punishment isn't placed upon you, but it's placed upon Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. Justice is served. It's just not on you at that point. Why is God's justice restrained? It's so that you can repent, so your friends can repent, so grandma and grandpa can repent, so your neighbors can repent. Romans 2.4, Paul says it slightly differently. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to, again, here we go, repentance. Paul says, Are you wondering why God isn't judging you for your sin? Let me tell you why. He's being kind to you so that you might repent, young person, so that you might be right with him. This is one of the hardest pills for most people to swallow. In fact, I've heard atheists say, look, if your God can forgive someone on death row who's committed a million murders and a million rapes and is a pedophile and is the scum of the earth, and on, the, on death row, as he's walking to the electric chair, if he says up a prayer, and he says, oh, Lord, forgive me, make me a, a, a Christian or whatever, that he's suddenly absolved of all of that sin, all of that wrongdoing, he says, I could never serve a God that way. I could never serve a God like that. And while I understand, it's kind of a caricature, right? It's the guy who's, you know, the way he paints it is this guy who really doesn't mean what he's saying. He's just, yeah, I'll become a Christian so that I don't have to go to hell when I die. That's really not what conversion is. You understand that, of course. Uh, But the reality is that, yes, if this man who was a, you know, a, a criminal rapist, serial killer, murderer, child pedophile, whoever, if he genuinely repents and trusts Christ on the electric chair just before they flip the switch and kill the guy... Yes, he would be granted heaven because of the righteousness of Christ. But what about justice, Pastor Rod? I'm glad you asked. Because at that point, the moment that he turns from his sins and trusts in Christ, justice is taken from him and placed upon Christ. That full burden of the rape and the murder and the pedophilia or whatever else makes up this guy's dark life is placed upon Christ. And you want to say, well, wait a minute, that that was 2,000 years ago. How can that happen if he repents today? And I'm glad you asked that as well. You forget that God is outside of time. And so he knows in 2020, this imaginary guy that we've developed here, we know, he knows that that guy's going to repent. And so on the cross 2,000 years ago, God pours out exactly the amount of just punishment that is deserved on all who would ever trust and believe. Kind of blow up your mind situation here, but that's exactly how this works. It's hard for most people to swallow, but God's not dealing with sin the way he's going to because he's waiting for us, for you, for your friends to repent. I guess really what I'm saying, young person, is that when you see evil outside of you, 
it really should remind you about the evil inside of you. You may not be able to control what the terrorist does or uh, you know, who wins the election. You might be terrified about the kind of evil perpetuated against babies in the womb. But when you see evil outside of you, let it remind you about the evil inside of you. Because if you can identify evil in them, well, certainly you can identify evil in yourself. And if you can point to the greater evil out there, what are you going to do about the inner evil in here? God begins to tell Habakkuk exactly what his plans are. Write it down. You're going to send it all over the place. Habakkuk, I'm aware. In fact, let me tell you about this people, Habakkuk. Let me tell you who these people are. We have a lot of text ahead of us, and I'm going to go pretty quickly, so hang with me, okay? God's talking to Habakkuk now about this people, and he's going to use a, a taunt song, okay? Taunt song. And he's going to create this song by using several woes, W-O-E, not W-O-A-H. It's a woe as in distress, disaster, foreboding, terror. It's the kind of thing where God is proclaiming a judgment upon them through the use of a poetic song. You'll kind of catch the drift as we go through that right now. Let me read it along with you. Okay. Shall not all these, the nations, he's talking about, the nations that he just talked about in verse 5, shall not all these nations take up their taunt against him, Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him and say, here's the first woe, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, and for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those who awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. And because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Essentially, he says, there's going to be a great reversal. Babylon, you should be taunted because you think you're getting away with it. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You're not. I see all of it. And by the way, I'm going to use some of the people that you enslaved to reverse the roles. And the people that you taunted are going to taunt you. The people that you enslaved are going to enslave you. He continues, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beams from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely, excuse me, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? God says, now you're, you're building your house on iniquity. You're murdering people. You're plundering them. And by the way, when you're building up your houses, you're doing that with stolen property. And let me tell you this, the house that you're building, I'm keeping track of. The wood beams that you use to build your house, those are calling out to me because it's unjust. He says, you're building all of this basically to be burned up. You're establishing an entire livelihood on something that is ultimately going to crumble underneath your feet. I'm going to judge you, Babylon. I see you. You're not getting away with anything. Jump over to verse 15 through 19. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. 
as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence done to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And God now says, you guys would be, you guys would be perverted. You would shame people. You would, you'd make them drunk so you could do whatever to them. And, and the text is nebulous. We don't know. You don't, don't think about it too much. But the Babylonians are bad people. He says, I see that. You're making them drunk to gaze upon their nakedness. Well, guess what? I'm going to expose you. One of the worst things that could happen to somebody in ancient Near East is to have their nakedness exposed. It's not a very good thing, especially with the people of Israel. It's not something you do. Well, he says, God says, I'm going to unclothe you. And in case you didn't catch it, he says, I'm going to make your uncircumcision seen exactly what it sounds like. You're not my people. You're uncircumcision. You're Gentile-like livelihood. I'm going to show that to everybody. Your glory will be turned into shame. Harsh words from the God of heaven and of earth. But this is his justice being laid out. He's telling Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you think I'm using these people against Israel and I'm not paying attention to what they're doing? Take notice. I pay, I pay close attention and I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention to all that they're doing. Verse uh, 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped, shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation, and when he makes speechless idols, well, excuse me, when he makes speechless idols, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. God says, I see that, and I see the fact that you're idolaters, and I, I'm not going to let you get away with that either. Because, see, here's the thing. These guys, when they would conquer a people, they'd go back to their idolatrous gods and say, thank you. Thank you, Marduk, for saving us, for giving us success. We bow to you. And as you remember last week, they'd bow to their nets and say, hey, thank you, nets, for helping us catch these people and helping us to be barbarous with them. We appreciate your kindness toward us. God hates idolatry. And so he says, I'm seeing that too. You're not going to get away with it. All this to say, count on God's exacting justice for every single molecule of evil. God is taking copious, meticulous notes. Evil is not going to win. I mentioned Adam Lanza last week. He's the shooter uh, at Sandy Hook Elementary. I found something that I thought was interesting. Direct your attention to the screen for this quick video. A brand new and heart-wrenching interview with the father of Sandy Hook elementary shooter Adam Lanza, opening up to the New Yorker, saying he would trade places with the victim's families and how he really feels about his son. ABC's John Muller is here with much more in this story. Robin, the interview is just chilling. The father of the boy responsible for one of the most horrible mass murders in American history, saying he wishes his son had never been born. This morning, Peter Lanza is speaking out for the first time since his son Adam killed 20 children and six teachers at Sandy Hook Elementary School in December of 2012. That same day, Adam fatally shot his mother, Peter's ex-wife, Nancy Lanza, and hours later took his own life. In an interview with The New Yorker, Lanza, who says he never goes one single hour without thinking of that day, says he's speaking out now because 
I want people to be afraid of the fact that this could happen to them. It doesn't have to be understood to be real. Lanza describes his son as a cheerful child who loved Sandy Hook School and even used his savings to buy Christmas toys for needy children. But as the years passed, Lanza paints a picture of a troubled young man who began to struggle in middle school after being diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, a diagnosis Adam refused to accept. Peter and Nancy separated in 2001. Peter's relationship with Adam strained. In fact, the two hadn't spoken in the two years leading up to the shooting. Lanza now says he wishes Adam had never been born, saying, you can't get any more evil. How much do I beat up on myself about the fact that he's my son? A lot. Later continuing, with hindsight, I know Adam would have killed me in a heartbeat if he had had the chance. I don't question that for a minute. Now, 15 months after the massacre, Peter has finally started going through the thousands of letters of support he has received. He has even met with two of the victim's families and said it was gut-wrenching. A victim's family member told me that they forgave Adam, and I didn't even know how to respond. Peter Lanza doesn't think the horror could have been predicted. Still, he constantly thinks about what he might have done differently in his relationship with Adam, saying no outcome could have been worse. A uh, couple things stood out to me about this father and what he said. Think about Adam Lanza and the fact that he had Asperger's. You think, okay, well, maybe there's a good explanation, right, for evil and what happened and what he perpetuated. But I, I like the way the father put it. He says, I want people to be... I want people to be afraid of the fact that this could happen to them. It doesn't have to be understood to be real. And I, I think he meant it in one way, but I think there's, a, there's, a, there's two ways to understand that. This could happen to you as in, hey, this guy could come to your school, and someone in Aliso Viejo could show up at your, you know, your, your high school if you're there and do the same kind of damage. But I think there's something else here that's, that's helpful. Afraid of the fact that this could happen to them. Afraid maybe of the evil that you yourself could perpetuate. It doesn't have to be understood to be real. In fact, most people, most prognosticators, when they try to unpack this, they're like, oh, what led to this? What motivation did he have? Evil doesn't have to have a motivation. But one of the things I think that's helpful uh, that, that we also saw here is that when Adam Lanza died, remember, how, how did he die? Murders mom and then shot himself. Question, did Adam Lanza get justice? What would happen if Adam Lanza went to court? He, no doubt, there would be countless charges of uh, manslaughter and, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, hundreds of charges. He might get 52 life sentences or something absurd like that. Adam Lanza did not get human justice, this side of the veil. But he got justice from God. And this is, again, goes back to my point here. When, we, when life seems unfair, and many people who, who, know the, who knew this man on the other end of that, you know, that he killed their son or daughter, many people said, well, that's not fair. This guy, this guy cowardly murdered himself. He didn't get justice. When God seems unfair, we need to remember that God is perfectly just, and he will execute justice at the right time, in the right way, and for the right purpose. Who alone can give Adam Lanza perfect justice? Human courts might try. He might get the death penalty. He might get 70 you know, life sentences or whatever. But is that really justice? In our limited scope of humanity, we're trying desperately hard to put our arms around evil and apply something to, to him that makes sense. But reality is, no matter how much we try, when, when Adam takes a life of somebody, 
I mean, okay, I guess he could take his life. But after that, when it gets more atrocious and, and greater in its forms of evil, how do you give justice to this? Christian and non-Christian, our only hope, our only hope in this life is to look to God and say, God, you must be the one to give exacting justice. You must be the one to do, to do justice perfectly. It doesn't mean we don't have cops. It doesn't mean we don't have courts. We do our best here in this life. But ultimately, real excellence, exacting justice only happens at the God level because he's going to give it perfectly. He's going to measure it out rightly. He's going to do it at the right reason for the right time. All of that comes together. Count on God's exacting justice for every evil. First and foremost, because God cares about evil more than you do. This is hard. Scripture tells Christians, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Why? Because the wrath of God is going to be perfect, executed to the nth degree. We as humans, though, we, we are imperfect vessels. In fact, uh, God cares about evil more than you. And I, I would say this, you think about evil, you get offended and upset about the really, really, really big stuff. When the really bad stuff happens, then you're motivated and then you're upset. But when God sees evil, even in the smallest degree, God cares about that. God takes note of that and God's going to deal with that. Scripture says in Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge a, and a God who feels indignation every day. Ask yourself this question. Do you feel indignation every day for evil? Every day. Maybe a couple days, right? Maybe a few days of the week you might feel indignation for evil, but God feels it every day. Why? Because God sees all the evil committed and he hates it. God hates evil. Cares about it more than you do. Not only that, as we already mentioned here, God will someday fully eradicate every single form of evil. Now, I want to be clear here. There's, there, there's a couple kinds of evil that I want to highlight, two specifically, actually, moral and natural. Okay, every evil will be dealt with, moral and natural. When we talk about moral evil, I'm talking about the kind of evil that you are as a person because of what you've inherited from Adam and the kind of evil you do as a choice because you yourself are a sinner. We talk about natural evil. We're talking about things like hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes, natural evils, things that happen in creation. Both of those forms of evil are going to be dealt with. Really quickly here, Romans 5.12, let's talk about moral evil. Because you're human, Romans 5.12 says that you are a sinner because you're a human. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Romans 5 tells us that when Adam ate the fruit, he made a decision that affected every single one of us as humans and that we now have inherited a polluted human nature. We call that the doctrine of original sin, that when Adam sinned, he made a decision that affected the rest of us. This is what it means to be in Adam. In Adam, we are all sinners by nature. We are polluted at birth. So in a real sense, no one in the world is sinless, even babies. My adorable eight-month-old daughter is not sinless. She's a sinner by birth. She'll be a sinner by choice at some point in her life, but she's a sinner by birth, and that's true for all of us. However, Scripture says that in the future, here's what's going to happen. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 
And there's that first reversal of evil. In fact, if you're a Christian, you've experienced a foretaste of this because when you were transplanted from being in Adam to being in Christ, God gave you a new heart with new desires and new motivations. That's step one. That's a starting process that will be finished in the long run. And so that is moral evil. Let's talk about natural evil. Pop quiz. Where does natural evil come from? The fall. Good job, this section. Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God issues judgment from that. That was a pretty immediate judgment. God said to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, specifically verse 17, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree with which I commanded you, you should not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. Cursed is the earth. The earth is now subjected to the fall. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. What used to be easy for you, it was still work, but used to be easy is now going to be subjected to difficulty, viruses, weeds, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, uh, you'll return to dust. God, because of Adam's sin, remember, he's the covenant head here. When he sinned, he subjected not only us in our nature to sin, but also the rest of creation. So in a real sense, moral evil and natural evil all come from the same source. Genesis chapter 3. However, there's a great reversal that's coming that God's going to deal with. In Revelation 21, verses 1 and 4 through 5, here's what John writes. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It's all gone. And this, in this new heaven, this new earth, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, the older gone. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Heavens and the earth are going to pass away. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So no more, no more moral evil, no more natural evil. God will deal with it fully, finally, and completely. God will eradicate every single evil. And my last point under this is that that should really concern you if you're not a Christian not a believer. The fact that God will exact perfect justice on every evil means that you should be thinking about that yourself. Because remember, God cares not just about the big stuff, but the little stuff as well. The lies, the adultery, or the lust, rather, uh, the unjust anger in your heart, the disobedience to your parents, the dishonoring of the authorities God has placed in your life. God cares about all those things. God's justice is on the horizon. Remember, the swelling wave Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's wrap this up here. Habakkuk verses 4, 14, and 20. Verse 14, we'll start with that first. Habakkuk essentially has God commenting on the reason why he's doing these things. What you're reading here is the telos, the purpose, the completion. Why does God exact judgment and justice upon humanity? Here's why. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
In other words, comprehensively, the entire world will know that I am the Lord and it will glorify me. It will know that I am meant to be their God and they are meant to be my people. This will be abundantly clear when I eradicate every single form of evil. Like a nuclear bomb being dropped on a house obliterates it, God's justice will obliterate every hint of evil. And then the result? The earth will know. It'll have the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The very last verse of this, ch- of this, this chapter, one of the things that the Lord says, he says, but the Lord, did not, so unlike the, the idols, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, stop complaining. Stop complaining at me. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. I am real. The idols are not. Stay silent. Watch what I'm going to do. The hinge of this chapter pivots on this verse here. Verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up, Babylon, the Chaldeans. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. In other words, if you want to escape the wrath of God, you better be on God's side. How do you get on God's side? You put your trust in him. It is the opposite of being proud. It is humble. It is contrite. I put it like this. You need to surrender to the supreme sovereign of creation. Everything hinges on your faith. See, God's work in using evil is greater than the sum of its parts. I kind of wish I was a mechanic. I wish I knew how to work on a car. I don't. Uh, but I envy guys that, you know, know how to do that. You know, the guys talk about lug nuts and wrenches and mufflers and things. I'm like, but I can use Logos really well. I know Bible software, buddy. <laughs> You know, well, let's imagine for a second I gave you a, a muffler. I said, here you go. Here's a muffler. Good luck with that. <laughs> you, you might not find that all too, too helpful, I'd imagine. Um, I can give you a transmission all by itself and say, here, here's a transmission. I hope that's a transmission. I think that's a tra- I'm pretty sure that's a transmission. I gave that to you. I said, here's a transmission. Good luck with that. Have some fun with it. And maybe I gave you some lug nuts and said, here's some lug nuts. Go have some fun with these things. I don't think any of those disparate parts might be really too useful for most of us because most of us aren't really mechanically oriented, but how about this? What if I gave you all the pieces of a car? Went to your house, I dropped this off at your front lawn, and I said, all right, here's the the pieces of the car. Now, unless you're really mechanically inclined, my guess is that for most of us, we're not going to be able to put together the car. In fact, it takes great wisdom and skill and knowledge to take the car from disparate parts into something that is usable. Uh, it requires a certain assembly pattern. In fact, and that, that's how assembly lines work. They assemble certain parts at certain time frames, and it all works together. And if you do it out of order, you're going to end up with a, with a car that either doesn't look good or doesn't work well or both. But if you get, if you get the things right, if you have the knowledge and the skill and the wisdom to put the car together, you can put together the perfect car. Now, don't covet. <laughs> Calm yourselves. You can come outside and look at it later. If you're really nice to me, I might let you sit inside. <laughs> it's only after you take all the disparate parts and put them together in the right place, in the right order, do you finally get an aesthetically pleasing car and a functional one? 
form and function, beauty and purpose. This is a little like how God puts together our world. For us, it looks like disparate pieces, right? Like, oh, I don't know what that, it looks like a muffler, there's a lug nut over there, I'm not sure what that windshield wiper is doing over there, but God is putting together a, a, a creation that will ultimately result in his glory and in his honor. If you go to the mechanic's shop and you see him putting together a car, like you would be unwise to offer your opinion about what things should be done, right? Because he's in the, he knows better. God is doing something infinitely more complex in putting together a car. He's putting together an entire system that all reflects his glory. And sometimes we look at him like, God, what are you doing? You should do it this way. You should do it that way. All the while he's saying, hey, chill. I got, that. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing, young person. I've been around a lot longer than you have. I'll be around forever after. We need to respond to God, first of all, by offering him our humble faith. Okay, we need to respond in humble faith. That's what Habakkuk 2.4 says. Behold, his soul is puffed up, puffed up, puffed up. Think about that. And the first thing I thought of was Mrs. Puff. But then I thought of the puffer fish, which is what she is actually. The puffer fish, right? The puffer fish is quite small. But the puffer fish, when it gets intimidated or when it, gets, uh, when it feels threatened, it'll puff itself up. God is saying to you, stop being a puffer fish. Don't puff yourself up. Instead, humble yourself and realize I know what I'm doing and it's maybe outside your pay grade, but I know what I'm doing. See, faith recognizes that there are aspects of God that we will never understand, but you understand enough about him to trust him about what you don't understand. God has given you sufficient information in scripture to say, I trust you, God. You're the king. You're the Lord. You do what you need to do. We also need to have a diligent study in our approach to God, a diligent study. Now, I wish we had some more time on this because there's some things I want to share with you, but let me just say this. The ultimate goal of creation is the glory of the Lord, to know the glory of the Lord. That's something you can start on right now. And for many of you, you might feel like you have a handle on the Bible. Let me tell you, as someone who's been studying the Bible for a little bit longer than you have, you don't have a handle on the Bible. In fact, Okay, really quickly here. These are terms, determinism, libertarianism, and compatibilism, that all speak to the way that people understand God's will, his sovereign purposes, along with free will to work together. Determinism says, God has designed all things and you can never escape his purposes, period. Libertarianism says, you have a free will and you can actually choose what you want to do apart from outside influences. Compatibilism says, Actually, it's both. Determinism, uh, determinism, determinism and libertarianism. Now, if we had time, we could talk all about that. Maybe you and your leaders can have some fun working through those terms. But let me just say this. There's a lot here that I, I wish you could unpack. You don't know as much as you think you know. You remember that whole situation I brought up last week about Pharaoh? I brought up it last week. I said, who hardened Pharaoh's heart first? Remember that? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart first? Was it Pharaoh or was it God. God. Now, I gave you a partial picture. Here's how scripture talks about that. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart approximately 10 times. If you look at the grammar, you kind of you have to do a little bit of guesswork in a few places, but about 10 times, the Lord says, I will harden his heart. Then there are places where it's, where it's said in a passive sense. The, the, the Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Something is happening to him. So it could be he himself is hardening his heart or it's a result of God hardening his heart. In other words, uh, the, it's an activity that's happening to Pharaoh and not necessarily something that he's doing. It could be him, 
But there's the Lord hardening it, hardening his heart. There's the passive sense of his heart being hardened. And then there's the Pharaoh saying, I'm going to harden my heart. And that happens at least six times. So you have a 10, 6, 6 breakout here. So the question then is, who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? I'm not going to say, well, it says 10, 10 says the Lord. So it's the Lord. It's, six, it's not a mathematical equation, although I'm showing you the mathematical layout just to give you a sense of how this works. It is a both and. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens his heart. And the two are not mutually exclusive. That's compatibilism. That's what we talked about last week and the week before that, concurrence. What man intends for evil, God intends for good. Same events, different purposes. Yeah, there you go. Surrender to the sovereign purposes of God, humble faith, diligent study, and lastly, in quiet reverence. God gives Habakkuk the smackdown. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple, Habakkuk. Let all the earth, including you, Habakkuk, keep silence before him. There is a time to stop complaining. Last week we talked about complaining to God. I don't want to give you the impression that you should be complaining to God on any regular basis because God smacks Habakkuk and says, hey, chill, I got this. I got this. Trust me on this. We'll talk next week about how Habakkuk responds to that. I think it's beautiful and brilliant. But essentially, he wants you to eventually grow content with having his purposes enacted. Humble faith, diligent study, quiet reverence. I bought Kristen a teapot. Looks like this. It's a nice teapot. Super expensive, like millions of dollars. It's because I love my wife. What I found interesting about this teapot is there are different numbers on the handle. Like if you have oolong tea, uh, it says like, oh, 160 degrees. If you have green tea, it's like 175 degrees. If you have black tea, 190 degrees. Uh, I, I realized that to get the best flavor out of a tea, it needs to have a certain temperature uh, of water, and then it needs to be in that water for a certain period of time steeping process. And I realized tea was so complicated. If we're going to go through all that trouble for tea, why not just make coffee? <laughs> I don't get people like that. I love you, babe, but I... if you put the tea in for too long, it could be bitter, too short, uh, flavorless. Tea needs to be in there for just the right amount of time at just the right temperature with all the conditions being perfect. God puts all of us in evil situations, heated situations, if you will. All of us have different temperatures and different time frames that God intends for that process to work through us. But as he does this, in the same way that you have the right temperature for the right time, that it gets the best flavor out of the tea, God's going to let you go through evil situations in your life at the right temperature for the right duration of time to get the best good out of your life and the greatest glory for him. If that's true for T, that's got to be true for us, right? When God seems unfair, you trust his perfect justice. You trust that he will accomplish and exact his justice in the right time, in the right way, for the right purpose. Let's pray. <laughs>